Welcome to the DLA Piper Tech Law podcast series in preparation for the European Technology Summit 2021 to be held on the 5th of October. My name is Mike Conradi and I'm a partner based in the London office of DLA Piper and I'm co-chair of the Global Law Firm's International Telecoms practice. Today we have Sean Williams with us. Sean is chairman of G Networks UK, the fibre network and internet services business in the UK, and is also chairman of Grain Connect, a fibre business concentrating on new build homes. So welcome, Sean, and thanks very much for being with us today. I wonder if we could start by asking you to give us a bit of an introduction to yourself, please. Uh, Mike, very nice to be with you here um, today. Um, I have I wear two hats these days. I'm chairman of G Network. I've been involved since 2018, uh, and also as chairman of Grain Connect. Um, so I have been in telecom since 2003. Um, I was at Ofcom, did uh, lead their broadband strategy, created OpenReach. I've been at, then at BT for nine years until 2017, where I was essentially chief strategy officer, lastly a member of the executive committee. So I looked after BT's fiber strategy, FTTC, FTTP, and things like that. And again, went through the process of redesigning the uh, the regime that governs uh, OpenReach. Great. Well, thank you, Sean. And for the benefit of our listeners, do note this podcast precedes a panel, which uh, Sean will be joining us on. Uh, as part of the summit, uh, where, where we'll be exploring digital infrastructure more broadly. We'll be talking not only about fibre, but about uh, towers, submarine cables, data centres. Uh, that's to be held at the summit on the 5th of October. And this podcast is one of a series that we're producing in advance of that summit. So do look out for the others. So let's get stuck in, Sean. Um, my first question is uh, that G Networks and Grain have already connected uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of UK homes, and you've you've uh, led the board through a the successful one billion pound fundraising uh, just a few months ago for G Networks with your plans to pass 1.3 million premises. Could you uh, give our viewers some context for how the partnership works with local councils and and perhaps talk a bit about the differences between G Network and, and Grain Connect for us? Sure. Yeah. Um... G Network is very much focused on central London, uh, central boroughs of central London. Um, and in the, those areas, the key local partnerships are essentially land, uh, landlords or landowners and uh, local councils. Uh, in, in central London, there are actually some quite large landowning estates. Um, you think of maybe the Crown Estate as being the largest of them, but there are quite a few. And it's actually very important to, to them to get uh, their support for G networks, uh, firing up their buildings, very important for us too. And likewise, it's very important for us to get the support of local councils for our plans, because we're going to be firing up their, their areas. We're going to be investing hundreds of millions of pounds in, uh, in upgrading the infrastructure from the ground up, um, as our, our advertising says, ward by ward. So, it needs their uh, support and engagement um, to get really to support our long-term investment plans in communications infrastructure in the capital. Um, it's a bit different with Grain. Uh, Grain is focused on new built housing estates. And in those circumstances, we get a contract, we write a contract with the house builders, which gives us the right to deploy network and, and uh, provide internet services to the houses on those estates. Um, so that's a very important partnership with the house builders. 
the downside of that is that um, it takes a long time for houses to get built. So you can't deploy in new builds in quite uh, as quickly as you can in existing housing in central London. And, uh, um, there's lots of things I'd like to touch on, on on there. One is, um, do either of your businesses uh, expect to get some kind of subsidy from the government to, to build? I'm sure, I assume G Networks in London doesn't. Does well, actually, <laughs> it, it actually did. The, the government and indeed uh, where we started in Westminster, the local uh, government also, um, had voucher schemes to uh, support the deployment of fibre networks in those areas. Um, and um, we, that was actually really very, very important and supportive uh, to G-Network where we started. Um, but public subsidy more typically is, as you, as you surmise, more directed at rural areas. Uh, so typically we're not benefiting from those at the moment. And grain has never benefited from, from public subsidy in that way. I think it's right actually that, um, uh, you know, the government is very keen to support fiber network build out. And um, I think it's important that that is, uh, you know, they support that with real money. As, I, I, as a taxpayer, I agree absolutely. Um, but we, we've certainly seen—I don't think it's an exaggeration to say—an explosion of interest in fibre projects, but in Europe, but particularly in the UK, over the last year. I think DLA we've worked on seven. We've got about three or four more on the go right now. That, it, it, and what's fascinating for me is the the range of business models that they that they all have. Some do rely on subsidies, some don't. Some are new builds, some are. In, uh, uh, you know, connecting existing premises. What what surprised me uh, actually, if you'd asked me two years ago, who's going to get a billion pounds to fundraise, I wouldn't have thought it's a London-based, uh, you know, fiber network. I, I would have guessed uh, that that funds would be reluctant to um, spend so much money in an area that already has plenty of fiber. So, uh, you know, what's the business case? You know, can you, can you tell me what, you know, how, how, how come I got that so wrong? Well, actually, the remarkable thing about London is that it has very poor broadband. Um, uh, it, it is a, that's really what makes it such a fantastic opportunity for G Network. Uh, it's the largest concentration of affluent dependent premises in the whole of uh, the European continent. And, um, and yet it has very poor broadband. And one of the reasons for that is that um, BT, when I was there as strategy director, chose to focus on uh, fiber to the cabinet deployment. Um, and actually, I personally think that BT did a really good job in deploying fiber to the cabinet all over the country. So we've got like 95% coverage of premises in the UK with that technology. Um, and uh, indeed, I think one of the dogs that didn't bark, uh, didn't bark during COVID. Actually, uh, the fixed uh, broadband uh, connection situation was a lot better than it would have been if we'd had uh, COVID 10 years previously. But um, that actually resulted in them doing relatively little in central London. Um, and the reason for that is actually, um, uh, it's about how the economics of, of that uh, technology works. And they tend to prioritize uh, larger cabinets, um, which tend to be not in inner city areas. Um, and they actually have very little fiber to any actual premises in London. Um, uh, the, the city generally has uh, um, very little fiber to the premises. Lots of fiber that in the streets or 
uh, backhaul fiber, but very, very little access fiber. And that's partly because it's actually extremely expensive uh, to deploy fiber uh, to premises in London. The duct infrastructure is very old, very congested and collapsed, um, not fit for reuse, not even for open reach. Um, the traffic management situation is particularly challenging in a highly congested city like London. So for a number of reasons, it's not been a priority for open reach or for other organs. Uh, so G Network's case is that this is nonetheless a very good business opportunity. It doesn't cost so much that it doesn't cost in. Um, it uh, is challenging for others, and that's obviously a defense when we deploy uh, it's going to be less attractive for others to, to come to where, where we're deploying. Um, and so it's, it's a great opportunity uh, for us to be, to be there first. Um, and that's essentially the underpinning of the business case. That's really interesting. Thank you. So a, a couple of thoughts from me on what you just said. Um, first one is that you, you talked about the, the open reach itself is struggling in London. Does that mean G Networks is not using open reach products and not, not even passive infrastructure access you're, you're just building the whole thing yeah uh, yourselves and that's right uh, mike in fact one of the key sort of strategic distinctions i think uh, amongst the many different all net models as you described earlier uh, those who want to build their network on the back of open reaches passive infrastructure and those that don't and g networks is g network is one of the ones that doesn't um, and is that because it's not fit for purpose or just you think it's a bit so, yeah, so you I would do, if it was fit for purpose, you would use it. It's not a strategic decision not to use it. Um, I think it, the, I think that's right, but um, it's not fit for purpose in the sense that it, it is uh, highly congested with ancient brittle copper. Uh, you, you wouldn't get a, a new fiber uh, substrate down those kinds of ducts. It's just not fit for reuse. Now, there are bits that are reusable, and we do use it occasionally when particularly we're connecting one area of streets where we're digging down streets to premises and another, and so we'll, we'll essentially use a backhaul kind of um, passive infrastructure connection where there's a decent open viable duct. Uh, but there's very little overhead infrastructure in London unless you get out more into the suburbs, um, which can be more readily used. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's partly that, but I think it's important also to think about passive infrastructure access in, in, the, in the sort of totality of the business model. Um, it needs the total cost of ownership uh, to be uh, you know, cost effective. That's to say you need to count into that the costs of breaking into ducts, using that and renting ducts, breaking out of ducts, uh, blowing fibers down them, the possibility of uh, other people are intervening in those ducts as well and causing consequential faults. So you need to think about it in the round. I'm not saying it's not viable. I think it's, it, there are plenty of good business models using PIA. This is just not the right area to be really prioritizing that. Very interesting. Uh, the other thing you, you touched on, we talked about the COVID, but uh, what I think has been a surprise to many people, uh, especially those outside, Part of the industry is how well the existing networks, at least in the UK, and I think we've had a similar story in the rest of Europe, have coped with the extra demand that's been put on them by people getting on six hours of Zoom calls a day uh, and, and all of the homeworking that, that is now much more common than it was 18 months ago. So I, I, what strikes me, that if, if our existing infrastructure, which isn't FTTP, is good enough for that, 
why why do you think people are going to pay extra to uh, to get a fiber to their house or, or or you know how's that working are you finding that they are prepared to pay more uh, yeah i mean uh, they they are prepared to i mean i think um FTTP is, uh, we're essentially looking at a, a technology uh, switch over here. Um, uh, copper is reaching the end of its capacity to deliver uh, the speeds that uh, households and businesses uh, already need. You can't, I mean, BT's net earth FTTC network can't successfully deliver more than about well, 50 to 80 megabits. And um, uh, actually, data demand is continuing to grow, uh, and that will continue as people use their infrastructure all over the place for more and more purposes, for work and for entertainment, um, and there's sort of 50% annual compound growth in, in data, data volumes. Uh, it will continue 40 to 50%, um, you know, for quite a long period of time to come. Uh, which will essentially render the copper access network obsolete, and why you see uh, this this technology switch over. Um, I think it is it has performed very well. FTTC has been a really good interim technology in my view, and has supported a lot of people in uh, in this pandemic time. But it's quite interesting that the the peak traffic volumes haven't shifted all that much, uh, because the the traditional peak in the evenings when everybody's broadband slowed down isn't when people have started to really pile into the network. Uh, they've been piling into it during the day. So the backhaul network has been actually remarkably resilient uh, to the amount of demand that people have been putting on, on it during the day because it's built for a peak. Because, so, yeah, so it had it lots of spare capacity during the day. And so all that's happened is that spare capacity. It's been soaked used. up. During, but then you know, thinking that through then, so, so what you're saying is uh, that the peak will increase in the, uh, because of the new uh, services people are using in the evenings. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and so that's that's there's where the business case is. I, mean, I can see in the case of grain, it's quite easy, isn't it? If you're building a new new uh, complex, then it, it doesn't cost anything extra to put fiber rather than copper in. Uh, so so you might as well do fiber. That's 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 pretty easy to understand. It's it seems you know. I guess I'm a lawyer. I'm pretty conservative. It's just it seems uh, it seems that it's harder to see uh, the justification for the great expense of digging up roads in central. London uh, to build the replacement to FTTC? Well, I, I think the, the issue is that um, it, copper, copper performance has, as I say, reaching the end of its viable life. It's not just about download speeds either. It's also about uh, the resilience and reliability and uh, uh, the latency. And the, the, people really need a really good, resilient, stable broadband service that can, which is not going to be speed constrained. Uh, and that is what you can get out of fiber in a way that you can't get out of, out of traditional copper. I mentioned the UK has been a real hotspot for investment recently, but other parts of Europe have also seen investments. But what, what, what I found interesting is that different countries seem to be using different models to, as to how to set things up. So in France, for example, it seems quite common for a local authority to tender what's effectively a local monopoly that is much more rare i don't want to say doesn't happen at all in the uk but it's very much more unusual i just wonder if you've got any thoughts on you know is there an advantage to one over the other do you do you, do you think the uk could have done better had it adopted the french model uh, or should the france have adopted the uk model 
Um, I mean, this is a very good question, and, and there is a very distinct uh, view. I'm actually very supportive of Ofcom's approach here, letting uh, uh, the market determine the outcome here. Um, uh, I think that um, we will see uh, that there's plenty of appetite to invest in private ordnet. This is we may come on and explore that a little bit further later. Um, there's lots of resource, financial and operational, to go after deployment. The market will determine who ends up in what areas and to what extent there is overbuild. Um, and to, to the extent that there is overbuild, you will then get competing infrastructures. Um, and while there's a sort of static inefficiency of that, having two networks where one would be sufficient, there is an important dynamic efficiency benefit in a long-term competitive infrastructure. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to get back to a world in which uh, we're all essentially reliant upon one monopoly asset in, in this particular case, Open Reaches, although Open Reaches was never a monopoly because uh, Virgin Media is there in 40% of the country. You get my point. We don't want to, to be reliant upon whether it's one or, or a dozen different monopolists or two dozen, three dozen. I think it is interesting that we will have this, this patchwork of local access networks, some overlapping to some extent, some competitive tension, uh, it'd be very interesting as a as a competitive restraint on overage. Do you think some investors are going to get their fingers burned? No, is there too much? Uh, That's always going, possible, isn't it? isn't it? I think this is not a straightforward business. I think you have to be um, you have to do this in a very well advised uh, way. I think there are via different viable strategies. Otherwise, I wouldn't be backing two of them. <laughs> I have to kind of say that. But I, I think it's actually true. But not all strategies are viable. And um, it'll be interesting to see which ones do actually work. Uh, there is a risk that some will get burnt. I, 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 do, I do think that's obviously a risk. We talked a little bit about the demand increasing very quickly. Uh, you know, and we hear a lot of talk about uh, innovative services like Internet of Things. And I, I wonder if you could talk about what, what trends you've identified that, that are driving this demand for more and more and better bandwidth? What's what's going on there and what do you think we might be seeing in the next few years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the general tendency um, uh, to use ever more, um, essentially they're all con connected computing devices, TVs, computers, tablets, phones, um, and uh, an array of connected objects as well, whether uh, cars or fridges or whatever that might be. Um, you know, that is a trend that's going to continue. And I think it's a very important part of um, economic development going forward, essentially. Um, so all of that demands very reliable, very pervasive uh, connectivity. Um, now, the end, the final connection is, is usually wireless, even on the end of a fiber to premises uh, uh, connection. And certainly out and about, there's lots of wireless technologies, not just uh, 4G and 5G. Um, but all of these require uh, really good fixed line connectivity to base stations and, um, and so on, as well as to premises and businesses. You're right. It's often said that uh, 5G is not a threat to fiber networks because it uses fiber in the backhaul uh, itself. We haven't really touched on that. Have you seen mobile customers, sorry, mobile, mobile operators be customers of either of your 
fiber codes for, for backhaul. Is that, is that happening? We are very much um, of the view that, and we are in discussions with parties about connectivity to um, uh, street level uh, wireless infrastructure, uh, whether it's city Wi-Fi networks or whether it's uh, 4G or 5G base stations. And, uh, and that is you know, an important complement to um, the mass market of connecting premises. Um, so we see that as being a strong positive rather than really very much in the way of substitution. Um, you know, there are cases uh, where wireless, uh, fixed wireless access broadband is, um, is viable and uh, it's uh, good in certain, you know, more challenging places for fiber to get to. It can be good in, even in relatively dense areas as a, as a sort of short-term solution. Very often it requires outside antennas or things like that. So we're not seeing it a, a significantly, a significant sort of substitution or threat at all. In general, and my long-term general view of this is that mobile is largely complementary to fixed rather than substitutional. And I think that's the way we see it being played out at the moment, um, whether it's 4G or 5G. Um, so I, I think you know, all of these networks will continue to grow and it'll be a positive future for mobile networks just as it is for fiber networks too. But I think they really will support each other rather than uh, take each other's business. No, that makes sense for me. Uh, so just a few months ago in December, we, DLA Piper, published our European Fiber to the Premises Investment Outlook report. And I should talk personally on this. I, up until about 18 months ago, I knew very little about the world of infrastructure funds. And uh, and that's because they hadn't been investing in telecoms. They, they'd been investing in uh, roads and railways and ports and airports. And that just didn't overlap with what I, what I do. But uh, that has certainly changed. And our report certainly highlighted that, that we were seeing infrastructure funds in particular moving into fiber in a very big way. Uh, one thought actually I have on that, you, you just talked about whether fixed wireless access is, is a, a good solution. One disadvantage of that is I think infrastructure funds are less interested in fixed wireless solutions because the, they, they want to invest in infrastructure and it's, it's difficult to pinpoint what the infrastructure is there. I suppose it's, a, you know, there's, there's the transmitter, but that's probably only going to last a few years, whereas a fiber network will last 20 years, 25 years or, or more. So I think part of the reason why there's been so much investment in fiber is because of the requirements of infrastructure funds to build infrastructure. Uh, I'm wondering if you've got any other thoughts on other forecasts you might share on, on how the investment landscape might might change, whether will there be consolidation? You, you mentioned a minute ago that the parallels or lack of parallels with what happened with the um, uh, cable companies in the UK 20 years ago. So are we going to see consolidation? Uh, what can you, what do you predict? Yeah, um, uh, just on the, on the infrastructure funds, I, I, I do very much agree with uh, the findings of your report that um, it's a very, very good asset for infrastructure funds in a, um, once, the, um, once the operator, alternative network operator gets to uh, a decent scale and maturity. Uh, I mean, a fully mature fiber network is a very, very attractive um, long-term infrastructure asset. Um, the substrate is extremely durable. I mean, you go on for decades. Uh, it's not going to be speed constrained in any foreseeable future. 
Um, it's not going to be not needed. Uh, so it's a decent sizable opportunity, market opportunity for, um, uh, for the alternative network operators. And you know, that's billions of pounds of capital um, required to um, make that opportunity come good um, in the next five years. Uh, and at the early stages, I think it's inevitable that um, an alternative network operator sort of starting from uh, as a startup is a, is a risky prospect. And it takes risk capital really to make them into uh, a scale enterprise. But um, along that journey, getting from startup to maturity, uh, the profile of risk does change and the profile of capital investors uh, can also change. So it's much more fit for infrastructure investors once it's you know, got to a certain scale of maturity. And that's what we are in fact seeing in reality. Uh, and it does help, uh, of course, bring down the cost of capital as the risk profile of the business starts to change. Um, just on, on that, I just wanted to kind of touch back on COVID. Do you think... So we talked about G networks, you raised a billion pounds recently during COVID. Do you think that you would have found it harder were it not for COVID to, uh, to persuade investors of the business case? I don't think so. I think, it would, I think our lives would have been a lot easier <laughs> so, <laughs> as far as our fundraising is concerned. I mean, just maybe we should just talk a bit about that in the circumstances, um, about COVID generally. Mm. Had lots of, there have been lots of puts and takes, so I might put it like that. Uh, from the effects of COVID. I mean, it's obviously it's been a disaster for many people's lives and businesses. Um, but um, on, for, for, for us, speaking at a sort of G network, uh, particularly, and thinking about it in the two halves of what we're doing to deploy networks and what we're doing to uh, recruit customers. On the network side, actually, there have been some problems because um, while we've been allowed to dig in streets, uh, with everybody at home working and, and studying at home, there's uh, been lots more sensitivity about noise. So we've, it's, we've incurred increased costs to put up sound barriers and to limit working hours and things like that. On the other hand, um, some of the streets of London have been absolutely deserted, which means mm. we've had a chance to build networks in streets we would never or normally deny on impossible. So that's been a real upside. And then in the market, on the market side of the equation, um, it's in some sense, it's been more difficult to recruit customers, particularly business customers, because business premises have been basically closed. But on the other hand, with the residentials on the residential side, um, everybody's been at home lying in drawback, <laughs> realizing they really need a decent line of connection. So that's been a plus. Um, it's been more difficult to connect them because people haven't really wanted to have engineers in their homes during the pandemic. But now that the pandemic is easy, at least here in the UK, yeah, subject to the Indian, Indian variant, um, you know, we're catching up on all of that. So, so we, you know, pluses and minuses on both sides. And I think similarly on the fundraising side, I think um, it was highly disruptive to a fundraising process that everybody basically had to sort of work out how to operate uh, when we're not all in the same building um, or, you know, whether it's uh, investors or banks, um, disruptive to the process but on the other hand I think we did get there and um, it's been uh, you know, a very supportive um, group of uh, equity investors and, um, and banks. So thank you Sean so much for taking the time to join us. To our listeners do look out for the 
thought leadership content that DLA Piper will be sharing with our clients and with others from now through to the October 2021 European Technology Summit. We're very much looking forward to having you there on our panel, Sean. Thank you very much, Mike. Very much looking forward to the Technology Summit. Um, and thank you for the time today as well. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.